Hi everyone, and welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we explore the science of crime and the practical application of this science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Take advantage of the advanced video capabilities offered by Bosch to help reduce your shrink risk. Integrate video recordings with point-of-sale data for visual verification of transactions and exception reporting. Use video analytics for immediate notification of important AP-related events and leverage analytics metadata for fast forensic searches for evidence and to improve merchandising and operations. Learn more about extending your video system beyond simple surveillance in Zones 1 through 4 of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at boschsecurity.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of LPRC's Crime Science, the podcast. Um, this our latest in our weekly series. I wasn't here last week as I was with Kroger Company and uh, 15 different uh, solution partner companies um, brainstorming to a certain extent the future of asset protection. And um, so we're going to kind of start there a little bit. And uh, as, as usual, um, I'm joined by our producer, Diego Rodriguez, uh, and co-host Tom Meehan of Control Tech and uh, also Tony D'Onofrio of ProSecure. And uh, so I usually start out on the weekly talking about the COVID-19 situation, and we will, but I think the lead-in here is to, we're going to kind of bookend a little bit with talking a little bit about crime control. Um, And then there are links there clearly with virus control. And then uh, when Tom comes on, we're going to go back to crime control um, as well. So uh, you know, we all know that uh, that they're, they're, the way that, uh, let's say, a pathogen, or in this case, um, a crime event occurs, uh, really contains a couple of components, right? And so the likelihood that something to happen that is going to happen is one thing. What's the probability or likelihood? Another component is, if something happens, how severe is it likely to be? Are we likely, because of certain background factors and foreground factors, to have a heart attack? Uh, or not a cardiac event? Are we? Uh, and then, if we do, how serious is that likely to be? And that's partly, uh, you know, based on other factors as well. And so, the same thing with a crime event: how likely are, uh, is an individual to be uh, robbed or assaulted or, or otherwise, or a place to be victimized, um, theft, fraud, or some other violence like armed robbery? Um, for example. So those are the things that we look at as scientists. That's what the practitioners you all out there look at, uh, Tom, on the podcast is one. So how do we look at uh, the probability or likelihood of being victimized and how well do we handle that? And that's the two components and that's exposure. So if if, uh, I go walking down a street that's known to have uh, had quite a bit of crime activity um, at 2 a.m. in the morning, um, I have uh, exposed myself and increased my risk of being victimized, a crime against person in that case. Um, now, the severity of that, if, if in fact there is a victimization, let's say zero to one, one, yep, got victimized. Somebody came up uh, with a knife or a gun or pretended to and said, give me all your money, um, give me your wallet, whatever it might be, your smartphone. That's that. So we're at one. Now, how severe is that likely to be is there, if there's injury uh, or death? But also, even before that, we talk about on here a lot about uh, trauma and the role that plays for an individual. It can be immediate. It can be 
It can also be persistent. And, and even through epigenetics, sometimes severe trauma can be passed on to uh, a subsequent ge generation through DNA, believe it or not. So, you know, there's a lot going on here, but the point is how I expose myself uh, and to risk two potential offenders, those are going to want to victimize another, me in this case, uh, plays a role in the same thing with, um, now how well do we handle that um, is the other part of the equation. So the, with the store, the same thing where we place that store and then how well we handle the risk are two different parts of the same puzzle. And that's why you have uh, organizations like Cap Index that are trying to better understand and provide and prognosticate what the risk level is in a given area based on prior crime activity, based on the, the built environment, you know, based on who's the nearby, how easy it is to get to and from and so forth. So a, a, a building that's in one spot, a store, could be exposed to a lot more risk than another store that's a few blocks away because it's different dynamics. Uh, and so their risk exposure is uh, on a spectrum or on a continuum there. Um, and so the same thing, though, with well, how, how well they handle that risk. You might have two stores in a very high-risk place, environment, same strip center or across the street from each other with equally high-risk exposure. There's a lot of offender clusters nearby. It's easy to get to and from. There are places that help facilitate and enable that crime. It's all about place and crime and interaction with motivated or likely offenders. So, but also how well do they handle that? And that's where we have audits and laws prevention, asset protection, of course. How well are we protecting ourselves? What are we doing with our with procedures and with the structure itself and with technologies and training and so on to protect ourselves, to mitigate, to reduce the not just the risk exposure. That's difficult. We're already there, but the exposure to severe risk. And so the point is, we'll come back to this later, and this is what we're all about. And when we're at Kroger last week, we talked about these dynamics about place and crime, the huge role that that plays because of risk exposure. Uh, but it's but it's integrated and interacts with humans. You know, those are really likely to offend. The more of those people, and the more attractive you are, um, and so forth, you're more likely to be victimized by those people. But then also, how well could we protect ourselves? Do we have, are our people vigilant, trained? Do we have good solutions and technologies and procedures? Um, are our local guardians, in other words, the police officers, deputy sheriffs that help protect us, are they on alert and, and standing by to help us when needed? So, and that's why this is a quick tie-in to the virus. And we have talked about this many times, but again, how well, how exposed am I or somebody else to somebody who is viremic shedding viral particles through their breathing and singing and talking and yelling and sneezing and coughing, you know, that's what it's about. And we see with the Delta variant, there's just evidently, according to the research and a lot of different, very scientific research studies around the world, the Delta and Delta plus variants just seem to generate a lot more viral particles than anybody that's exposed to them, whether you're vaccinated or not vaccinated. And as we've long talked about on this podcast, you know, there's not sterilizing uh, vaccines here. They don't eliminate and, and reduce the probability that somebody's infected um, at all. What they do is, uh, at least with these more um, prolific variants anyway, do that kind of thing. And the, we've used the seatbelt analogy 
we know a seatbelt does not prevent accidents. It wasn't designed to prevent accidents. It's not going to stop a, a vehicle with, from colliding with you or you colliding with another vehicle or, or a light pole or whatever. Um, it's, it's just not designed to do that. It doesn't eliminate injury or death either. That if we hit a light pole or somebody collides with us, we can still be injured or even killed or our loved ones, even if we're seat belted in. It doesn't matter. It's not going to eliminate that possibility. But what it does do, of course, is it restrains our bodies, you know, from movement forward or sideways, you know, so we're not ejected from a vehicle or propelled through the windshield or even hit the steering wheel or windshield. We're just so it reduces the probability of injury and the seriousness of injury, but it doesn't eliminate the risk of an accident. It doesn't eliminate the risk of injury or death. So these things with vaccines are just not going to keep us from being infected. Um, nobody's ever made that claim. Uh, their hope is that maybe some of the nasal, the mist ones might provide a little bit of that protection, but nobody knows. It's just a systemic protection, not local protection. So if we inhale particles from somebody that's nearby us, that's unmasked and we're unmasked or, or masked or whatever, depending on the particles, there's a lot more of them now with these new variants. Uh, we're more likely to ingest some of these and now we are infected. And if we now talk or sneeze or cough, um, then we also are putting out the viral particles and that's how virus viruses, that's how it moves around and becomes viral, you know, that's how things are transmitted. So I think it's the same thing with crime that we're trying to understand that, you know, if we have a good parking lot zone four protection, um, if we have good zone four to three, you know, that transition from outside to inside, more at the doors, Walmart says, um, establishing the, the um, impression of control there. If we have good guardianship inside that place, that store, that distribution center or office environment, um, we still can have uh, crime events occur. We know that there's no guarantee, but it can reduce the probability and it can reduce, that's deterrence, uh, and it can reduce the severity potentially. And that's through that disruption of the individual. They don't get what they want or as many as they want, or they uh, desist or stop their, their attack or whatever, because of some of the things we've done to protect ourselves. So the analogies are incredible. And those of us that are scientists and practitioners in the area of crime prevention, um, asset protection, loss prevention, um, that these, what we see with the virus and other pathogens, um, it, it's incredible the parallels that we have to learn from each other and to think about these things. But those of us, again, I think that are, that are trying to pay attention to scientific research in um, crime prevention, scientific research in viral protection. Go with the, as they say, the science, but understanding, and science is nothing more than logic models and frameworks. And again, understanding how do these things work? How does a person leave their tent, their home, their cave, whatever, in, in their apartment and, and move through space and time to victimize another person, take advantage of them to commit theft, fraud, or violence? Um, what are all the, the places that they go and the things that they think and do and say throughout that journey to crime and left of bang, we call it right, just like in the military, bang is the actual crime attempt itself for the event. And then right of bang, after they victimize somebody, what does that look like? And that's what we talked about out there in Cincinnati and with Kroger and the team was this is the, these are the pathways, just like with a virus, but these are the pathways of a criminal offender, the red guy. 
right, is they victimize the green person. And the green person is the, the legitimate place manager, the worker, the delivery person, of course, the shopper, customer. How do they do that? And what's that look like? And what are the aiming points for us to, you know, better understand what's going on, to have better intel information, to be have sentinels through sensors that would pick up on somebody said, I'm headed so-and-so to, to take care of business or to do this or to do that. If we see them, we have facial uh, recognition, feature matching technology, and so on. Say, okay, this person that said that they're armed and dangerous and they're heading here, they're here or they're in the parking lot now that provides that heads up. So what do we do? How do we do it? And by us understanding through science that there's a framework, there's a logic model about how things work and how the things that we do about it work themselves to, again, deter, disrupt, or if that doesn't work, to document the individual, document the event so that we can take action to take them out of circulation uh, as victimizers. So I want to just kind of touch on that briefly. And um, as we go forward, that's what we do at the LPRC at the University of Florida on the crime prevention research team is try and make sense of these things, break it down, and then conduct rigorous research and development around um, affecting uh, behavior at each of those points so that we have much safer places um, and the vulnerable much better safeguarded. Um, so we're looking at multi-system effects from the Delta virus and that we talked about the transmission um, and why are we having long COVID from any of the different variants. And I still have family and friends that ha are experiencing that. There's clearly, it's a systemic multi-system effect. It's not a virus that just makes us cough and wheeze a little bit, even though that can be the case in many of us and probably most that are affected or infected um, that get some disease response from that infection. Um, but it's, uh, it seems to be some kind of vasculitis that the blood vessels have some leakage and that there's some damage done, whether it's short or long-term, I guess research and time over time will tell us. Um, we know on the vaccine front, you know, again, all we're trying to do is raise the alarms. We don't have another September 11th or Pearl Harbor where we're caught unaware. Our immune system, our um, innate and adaptive immune systems are not there, that, that there's an antibody, a proper response that there's a proper cellular or, or, you know, killer T cell response and so on, um, as the scientists say in that area. Um, we know right now that there are 75 preclinical um, uh, compounds going on, molecules or vaccines and rather in, that are being tested. And there are now 99 vaccines in clinical trials. We've kind of tracked this, more have moved into human clinical trials, um, 54 in phase one. Um, they're looking at initial safety profiles, trying to understand um, how it affects humans from a safety profile standpoint or what kind of effects or side effects. 39 in phase two, larger trials now looking at dosing as well as safety. Uh, 32 candidates, vaccine candidates in phase three, large scale randomized controlled trials um, as well, looking again at safety and efficacy of the vaccine. We know that 11 have the emergency use authorization with eight approved elsewhere in the world. Um, the two that are in um, FDA approval process, again, being the uh, Pfizer BioNTech and then the Moderna, the mRNA uh, vaccine candidates that we're using right now. Um, and I know that there are roughly 350 million doses of those two plus the Johnson Johnson Janssen 
uh, one one shot vaccine are out there, but the approval process evidently continues. A big part of the approval process is re-examining all the data, continuing to follow all those candidates that were in phase three trials uh, in the U.S. or potentially elsewhere, following again to see the efficacy and safety of the vaccine for them, um, as well as looking at other data. And my understanding too is doing um, job site uh, inspections and audits of any and every place that touches the vaccine. That's all part of the process. So it takes a while. It takes months or years to approve these things because it's so exhaustive and extensive. Um, so that's a little bit about that. You know, some of the, something else that's pretty interesting, at least in my opinion, I guess, is the, um, you know, the, the vaccine reactions people have been concerned about in young people, myocarditis, not my area, but myo, of course, being muscle and the cardio. And uh, so there's some inflammation or infection there it looks like an infectious uh, I'm sorry inflammation response um, but what was interesting was you're seeing that uh, response at about one in 20,000 um, people under the age of say 16 or 18 um, in in the studies now and there's so much research and so much observation by all types of independent panels and the FDA uh, scientists themselves um, as well as the institutions that are involved and um, but it looks to be, according to Dr. Offit and others, infectious disease uh, faculty at different institutions, um, one in twenty thousand, almost all evidently are self-resolved and so on. Even though some could be more serious, but what they also found in the research is that, but with COVID, if that if if children in that same demographic are infected with COVID nineteen, one in forty. So one in twenty thousand, if you're vaccinated one in 40 if you're not and you contract the, the disease. So um, just to kind of put it perspective, at least for me, um, the non-vaccinated in the United States is pretty interesting too. Um, there's always a popular narrative out there, but you know it really looks like about uh, in, in the most vulnerable groups, um, let's say those that are 65 and above, 92% of uh, 65 to 74 year old Americans have now been fully vaccinated. Uh, 87% of those that are over 75, a lot of them just aren't able to be vaccinated by anything. Um, but we've got massive, huge penetration. And that started really um, as soon as the vaccines were authorized in 2020, um, getting that kind of penetration. And so that's that's the good news. Um, but you're seeing some other interesting demographics, about 59% now, or over 59% of uh, white American adults uh, have now been vaccinated. Um, so we're not quite at 60%. Um, you're seeing that uh, about 50 or less than 50% of uh, African-American, Black Americans are vaccinated. Uh, just under 50% of Hispanic Americans um, are vaccinated. Um, you're seeing that on the, if you look at an urban and rural breakout, now about 45% of urban um, dwelling American adults are vaccinated, 39% of rural so there's not a massive difference there. I'm not sure if it's just a significant difference or not, but you're seeing that the whatever the narrative is in your hearing or in your mind, um, it really looks like um, there are some differences, but not dramatic differences by voter group and by uh, age and race and so on. But there are some. But with the young people, 18 to 24, 25% of those adults are now vaccinated. So that's the most resistant group it looks like right now with at least a third saying that they are not interested in becoming vaccinated against 
COVID-19 disease um, and, and uh, about 25% of black and Hispanic um, and uh, just uh, above double digits with white Americans saying they will not be vaccinated. So uh, according to some brand new survey data that are out there. So anyway, interesting news. We'll go over to um, Impact Conference and um, that's rapidly approaching. Um, as of right now, it looks like all full steam ahead, a continued record uh, enrollment um, and uh, sponsorship and so on going on for that event. The content, again, in my opinion, is, is, is amazing. The learning lab breakouts, the main stage content, um, the lab tours and the events that we're going to have. We're not just going to have uh, a, you know event where people sit around and drink and there's a poster by the sponsor. We're going to have that component, of course, with good food and beverages, but we're going to have uh, a nice, um, on that Monday evening, the 4th of October, we're going to, you're going to see the way Diego's orchestrated this. It's going to be a real experience to understand the five zones of influence, but how we increase effort, risk, and reward to deter and disrupt offenders, uh, how we do that through the five zones. Um, that'll be combined with the lab tours the five physical labs in the UF Innovate Hub complex, where we'll have it this year, which is a beautiful, spacious complex inside and out the outside of the building. Um, think about 10 times the size of what we had before at Impacts that were heavily attended and enjoyed by all, uh, as well as the parking lot zone for lab tours um, that we'll be having outside with lighting and all kind of cool stuff. Um, the, the Tuesday evening social event uh, always a big hit in the swamp, um, the stadium up on the Champions Club level. Look for some great music, great barbecue and food, uh, great beverages, and a lot of good interactions up there going on. Um, and so we're looking forward to it. Go to lpresearch.org to enroll now, um, or if you're a solution partner, to get on board and sponsor and take advantage of the amazing uh, LP decision makers. AP decision makers that will be involved in the impact conference. So that's it from this front, uh, multiple research projects going on, probably over 35 right now by the research team, Kenna Carlson, Corey Lowe, and uh, Mackenzie Kushner, um, supported by Natanya Cruz, and, um, and myself working on a myriad of different projects. So let me, with no further ado, go over to uh, Tom Meehan. Tom, can you kind of fill us in from your standpoint? Sure. Got a, got a lot of great stuff that you went over. A lot a lot going on. I'll just try to touch on a couple of things. One, and it's it's basically been in every newspaper uh, uh, in the in every major news publication that, and the, the I'll read what the Wall Street Journal max, uh, masks are back on at Home Depot, McDonald's, and Target. I think it's important that when you see these headlines, I mean, in most cases, what what they're referring to is that the retailers are. Uh, going to have their employees. And in some cases, if not all that I read so far, it's still optional for customers. Um, I think the media sometimes does a little doom and gloom when you read, when you, when I read some of these stories, it, um, it was really heavily on, you know, could there be a second wave? But the reality here is, as Reed, Reed talked about, there are, are some folks that still are unvaccinated and the Delta variant is real. So, We'll continue to keep people apprised uh, of what's going on there. The other thing, and I just wanted to touch on it because Reed, you mentioned the one in twenty thousand. Um, I was actually reading an article that most um, vaccines that are given to children, so MMR, for instance, 
which is widely given, has a reaction at one in 16,000. So it's actually more common. And, you know, that's one of those things where one in 20,000 is actually pretty good for the vac vaccination. And, and to your point, most of the time it's mild. Um, people can have just allergic reactions to anything. So I thought that was really interesting uh, because, you know, my kids uh, do not have COVID yet. They're too young, but they have every other vaccination. So I was starting to read in comparables of what it looked like compared to everything else. So uh, maybe on a different episode, we'll talk about that. I wanted to talk about uh, something that's been in the news. And I, I think as long as I can remember being in the LPRC, which which is, um, you know, goes back quite a bit now, um, benefit denial and, and the announcement that Home Depot had made about benefit denial being instituted in power tools. I'm sure uh, if you're a LPRC member and you have been for more than 10 years, you probably remember uh, some of the conversations around software and, and gift cards and things that, you know, what really comes down to is if you buy it, it doesn't work until, you know, you get that code activation or an activation. And I remember I, I think it was about 15 years ago, uh, watching someone at an LPRC talk about how you can no longer buy software without an activation code at, at the end cap. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, then when is it going to transition? I also, if the listeners aren't aware, there are a lot of electronic devices, TVs in particular, um, that again, I think Reed was directly involved in a lot of this, that where there was a benefit denial put in, where basically if you steal a, a flat screen TV in certain instances, and you don't have an activation code, it's rendered useless. You just have a big box. And so Home Depot has taken the move to do this towards power tools and using a Bluetooth technology to activate the tool. So in, in, in a very simplified approach, if you buy this tool, it's activated um, through a Bluetooth technology. If you stole this tool and, and left the store without paying for it, you would have a, a useless or a rendered uh, useless tool and so this is a big move because this is true benefit denial. This is actually taking away, you know, when, when we, we think, see it, fear it, get it, or this really takes away the benefit from the bad guy. They read, if, if they read a sign that says the tool doesn't work for you get an activation code, they're going to probably move on. Um, so I was asked a couple of questions, you know, and I'm by no means uh, an expert on this particular technology, but Bluetooth, the level of encryption that Bluetooth uses, could it be broken? Absolutely. But the reality is that it would take a lot more than the average individual to hack this. Um, and the idea here is that it's going to throw it off a, a huge percentage. I don't believe today that you would find anybody who would be willing to take the time to hack it right now. Uh, it would cost them more than what it's worth. And actually, some of those TVs, there was some stories out years ago, oh, well, you can get this hacked. And I would uh, leave it to the equivalent of, do you want to pay $500 to hack a $200 TV or a $300 TV? That's really what it comes down to. So this is a big, big move. And one of the things I really found interesting is it's it's obviously directed towards combating ORC is that, um, you know, Scott Glenn and the Home Depot really, I think just about every um, major publication that you can think of, Business Insider, um, uh, had a really good piece about ORC and how what the impacts would be. But then um, some of the offshoots that probably not everybody reads, like Hackaday and uh, a lot of the, the cyber publications talked about it. And basically, um, it, it, the, the, the piece here is that the device isn't going to work until it's activated at control tech, uh, at, at the counter. So if you're going to the checkout counter, you're not going to be able to activate the, the tool. You're not gonna be able to use the tool unless it's paid for. So this is a big win 
and benefit denial. I also, and this is just my opinion, this is not the opinion of the LPRC or controls or anybody else. I also think that if this is successful, you'll see it really widely adopted in other electronic or power devices uh, that are out there. Keep in mind that the device does not need to be plugged in for this to work. Um, so this is something where there's a Bluetooth um, chip inside, very, very small. They're uh, really smaller than a quarter at this point and they're battery powered and be able to be activated. So I, I suspect that we'll talk a little bit more as I get done here. I'll ask Reed if he has anything to add on it, but I just wanted to quickly touch on something that we talked about, um, that we've talked about for the last few weeks because there's a better update um, of this massive or what was told was a massive cyber attack that happened over the 4th of July weekend. And basically two things that, that I wanted to just talk about briefly is one, this is a supply chain cyber attack. And what that means is that they went, uh, the actors went after a service provider that had multiple people underneath it. And Kasim is the name of the company and they're a managed service provider software that helps companies stay up to date on patching. So they were attacked and then basically it disseminated throughout their customer base. Two things to note, one, this is predominantly um, a commercial attack. It's not gonna, that attack didn't affect um, many, if any, really people. And then the other piece here is that while it, you know, the announcements was that it was huge. It affected less than a thousand companies. Um, and that not, not saying that that's not a significant number, but at the end of the day, um, small and medium-sized businesses it affected. This is just, the reason I'm bringing this up, the supply chain attack is because this is another method uh, to deploy ransomware. And what, I, what it would happen is, and this is similar to kind of the Chinese attack on Microsoft Exchange, as opposed to attacking a thousand computers or hundreds of thousands of computers, you attack a central point that manages mult multiple and it disseminates. The, the other point to make here is that unlike other attacks where we talk about good uh, cybersecurity hygiene, like not clicking on links, not you know sharing passwords, you don't really have any of those applications here because you have a managed provider that's providing a service that's actually spreading uh, the malware or virus through your network uh, without any human input. So this is a very different attack than when you click on it. And I think we'll see more of these to come. And I, I don't think we'll probably talk about this one much more because we've talked about it. But when we talk about ransomware, um, the, the, the other takeaway here is this is really the key importance of having uh, a physical backup because in this case, your provider that's supposed to give you patches and protect you is the is actually the one disseminating the malware or the ransomware. And the only way really around to protect yourself there is to have a physical backup um, of your of your uh, your files, so that if this happened, you could go ahead and start from scratch. So, uh, without without really uh, belonging this, read what what can you share? Because I know you were directly involved in some of these benefit denial, and I know the LPRC played a huge role over the, I feel like the last 15 years in the benefit denial world. What can you share about it? Right, well, <laughs> thanks Tom, at this advanced age, it was actually 21 years ago, maybe almost 22 years ago, I published a journal article in the peer-reviewed journal Security, right? And the article is around crime and loss control dynamics and the ways that we do that, you know, the modes of uh, action. But anyway, one of them was trying to move and add a new one into the list. They're under situational crime prevention. 
And the idea was to deny somebody the benefit of rewards um, profiting from their crime, and but to let them know that before they even tried to, before they attempted to, to steal in this case. And uh, so I didn't, I, it took me weeks. I got back to Bob Leonardo after a lot of whiteboarding. Uh, and I said, I think it's called benefit denial. Let's call it that, you know, we're denying some of the benefits. So don't try if you, why steal a hanger out of a hotel room? That's those little knob ones. You can steal the, that hanger. There's no risk of getting caught. Probably uh, it's, there's no effort problem here. You just pull it off and put it in your bag. Uh, but unless you steal the whole rack, you're denied the benefit. So, so well, I'm not going to steal a hanger, for example. So that was the benefit denial genesis. And it was awesome. Dr. Clark, uh, Ron Clark, uh, the dean up there at Rutgers University, and the inventor, the developer of situational crime prevention and the matrix we use, it's so powerful. It added to effort, risk, reward, now benefit denial. Um, and then we also have denial, you know, whatever excuses and, and things like that. Um, and that's where it came from. But then it, since then, it's been like this 22 year, year uphill battle to help people think about it. Now, the a huge, huge exception in retail is uh, are the ink tags, the dye tags. That's not increasing effort to steal. It's not increasing the risk of, of being caught stealing, but it reduces the benefit or potential benefit or rewards of the stolen goods. Uh, and so if it's got that device on there, now there are countermeasures, counter countermeasures, but that's, that's it. And it's really, we are so excited. I'm really excited you brought it up on the podcast because we did not just one, but two um, sort of summits, benefit denial summits hosted by the Home Depot in Atlanta. Uh, and it took this crew, it took Scott Glenn, the vice president up there and others to really see the vision and to see this uh, effort through to broad broad adoption across their chain. Now, Walmart, I will give them huge credit. They worked with us a lot on benefit denial. They still use it on some of their products. And I'd also say some people like Quicken and others, QuickBooks put some of the benefit denial technology on their own into their products. But this Home Depot is probably the highest visibility, the most uh, cross-adopted um, leverage. And like you said, this is true benefit denial. But anyway, that's my long-winded kind of retort, I guess, Tom, uh, to what you bringing this up and, and I'm really glad you did. Yeah. And I, I think for just because this topic deserves it, maybe we'll, we'll continue to talk about it because I think we're going to learn a lot of what it, what goes out there. And I'm, I put some feelers out, you know, in, in some back channels to see what is being talked about on the dark web. Um, and what is being talked about in some of the more nefarious channels to see what the, the actors that are a little bit more professional are saying about it. We often hear kind of what it is. So far, the only thing that I've seen is sharing of the articles and kind of the the the, the conversation of, well, how would we defeat this type of uh, chatter? It's still pretty new. So we'll, we'll definitely keep an eye on it. I, I think I think it'll, it'll evolve and certainly it's getting media attention, which is um, why the bad guys are talking about it because the bad guys, we often say this and um, the red customer does a lot of research, probably listens to this podcast uh, if they're a professional one. And uh, the great part here is that this is a very, very, very difficult thing to defeat. Um, and honestly, the amount of effort at this point to put in would would not <laughs> equal the rewards. So I think this is a true benefit denial and it's it's a really exciting time in kind of loss prevention and asset protection. And with that, Reed, I'll just turn it back over to you for the ending. 
All right. Well, I appreciate this, Tom. And, and, and I couldn't agree more with you either on that last part and that re- to really get the, the, uh, the effectiveness, the efficaciousness that we're looking for, everybody realizes too, there's got to be this concentrated and long-term multi, I hate to use the term multi-level marketing effort, but, but you're right. The, the good customer, the green, she needs to know, or he needs to know this is, has a benefit than all device. You need to buy it in order to get it. So if they have something that they somehow acquired, it doesn't work. They need to understand that it needs to be activated or they may have bought something that was stolen. Okay. So the in-store customer, the green shopper needs to better understand the employee has to much more thoroughly understand how, what this technology is and how it works so that they're on board and they routinely um, enable the product when it's legitimately purchased. Uh, But then you go to that secondary and tertiary level. And that's where the uh, the platform operators that do reselling, you know, that are out there, we know there's a ton of them. They need to understand this too. Look, if you get these goods in one of the the shops on your site, um, some of this could be stolen goods. Well, that's already going on. Whether talk that's happening, plus retailers are working with them um, and legislators to combat the problem. But there needs to be an education. Look, buyer beware. If you're a good shopper, you go on one of these sites. And we can we can fill in the blank. There are thirty or forty of them out there, including some that are household names. Um, you need to buyer beware. If you buy something off there that's protected with benefit denial, it's not going to work, and the retailer is not going to take it back uh, because it's probably stolen and so on. So, yeah, there's a lot of effort that's going to have to go into this to to maintain you know the the deterrence that everybody's looking for. But it's really exciting to see it moving forward. I give all the credit in the world to the Home Depot and Scott Glenn and the team there for their efforts. So um, so let me also turn it over to uh, Tony D'Onofrio. Um, Tony, uh, building on this conversation we're having today, can uh, you fill us in on what's going on in the United States and around the world as far as retailing? Thank you again. And great conversation uh, again this week in terms of what's happening in LPRC and also with COVID. Uh, let me add some industry data from various sources. Let me start with chain store age and some early indication in terms of what's gonna happen with holiday shopping uh, this year. According to a new surveys of consumers in the US, UK and Australia, 57% of the respondents plan to conduct the majority of their holiday shopping online. Three quarters said they will purchase more from our website that allowed them to message with an expert to ask questions and help them make purchases. And 62% said they would trust an online retailer more if associates were readily available on messaging. In addition, the survey indicated that 63% of our respondents said they would purchase more from a website that offered an artificial intelligence-based virtual assistant to help Four in five or 80% of respondents said they would message from their phones while in the store if the store associate were busy or unavailable. When online shopping, consumers report they would trust a virtual assistant to help with the following top three e-commerce activities. Number one, give updates on shipping and delivery, that's 87%. Number two, answer frequently asked questions, 85%, and number three, take down names and shipping orders, 80%. Finally, the survey also noted the percentage of respondents interested in the following 
virtual experiences at the start of the season. So 45% are interested in virtual showrooms. 44% are interested in viewing products in augmented and virtual reality. And 34% are interested in watching shopping while watching a live stream. So and as I've spoken many times before, live streaming is already over $100 billion in sales in China. And really, it's overdue to come to the West. So that's a, a trend that I see coming to the side of the world. So interesting how the, this holiday season is shaping up because of all the remnants of COVID. Also interesting this week for me were from Statista was uh, really an understanding in terms of what happens online or on one minute on the internet. So here's the estimated amount of, of data that's created on the internet in one minute as reported by Statista. In one minute, 28,000 new subscribers are watching Netflix. Nearly 700,000 stories are shared on Instagram. Over 9,000 connections are made on LinkedIn. 69 million messages are sent on WhatsApp. 500 new downloads take place of TikTok. $1.6 million is spent uh, shopping online. Nearly 200 million emails are sent and 500 hours of content are uploaded on YouTube. That reinforces what I've been saying for a while and I've spoken to. We've generated more data in the last two years than we've generated in the entire history of mankind. So it gives you an idea how much data and how much data explosion is taking place. Let me also add some additional information from Statista, which was interesting this week, which is uh, the U.S. had a very robust quarter uh, with GDP growing six and a half and six and a half percent in the second quarter. Uh, once again, personal consumption was the main driver behind the, the, the upswing as private domestic investment and the trade, trade deficit pulled down in the other direction. Personal consumption by far was the largest contributor and it increased nearly 12% compared to the preceding quarter and an annualized rate. So again, uh, and services were the main drivers of that consumer spending. But again, it gives you a clear indicator in terms of what's happening to consumers and the pace that consumers are spending. And finally, let me talk about uh, from Retail Dives, some of the trends that will happen online versus in-store sales in our near future. Uh, and this is really is looking at in terms of the shifts that are taking place between shopping in physical stores versus online. The latest survey that they just published this past week is, indicates that the, the share of online in-store sales will decline to 62.4% by 2025 which is down from 70% this year and down from 87% in 2015. Uh, again, that's a trend that shows that online keeps growing, but again, the vast majority of uh, retail sales still take place in physical stores. Uh, the article also points out that the shift will not be smooth or cheap. Brick and mortars, and as has been throughout our history, as I just said, I will remain the primary uh, 
uh, activity in terms of where shopping would, will take place. Uh, U.S. actually is different than the rest of the world. That, that stat that I gave you was for the entire world. Online sales in the U.S. Uh, are, are still rising and they will reach 23.6% of uh, total retail sales uh, by 2025. Store fulfillment and service are on pace to reach over $140 billion by 2024. And I'll close with my, one of my favorite quotes from that article, uh, which says, quote, the store of the future must become a physical portal into brand and product experiences, becoming places where consumers can be inspired, learn, co-work, socialize, and experiment with new products while using digital touch points such as mobile phones and social media and other technology advancements to drive tra store traffic and enable physical stores to operate as part of a broader interconnected ecosystem. This would mean, among other things, that the store network will become an increasingly vital part of the last mile fulfillment. So to me, physical stores uh, will be a critical, critical component going forward. Still, the vast majority of where uh, retail sales will, will take place, but they'll have to blend and really deliver our truly optimized omni-channel or unified commerce experience because of consumers who can continuously switch between digital and non-digital activities. So a bright, bright future of retail, as I indicated in the recently updated disruptive future of retail that was delivered in the last several weeks online. So with that, uh, some really good data. Let me turn it over back uh, to Reed. Thank you. I want to thank everybody for joining us today. Crime Science, the podcast. Uh, amazing dialogue. I really appreciate it again, Tom, for you curating some uh, exciting topics for everybody. And you can see the podcast. We're trying to help us and help all of you all think together about how these crimes occur and how things that we need to do about them work to deter or disrupt people. Uh, and, if, and so on, that that's what we're trying to do is work together as a one big uh, LPRC research and results community. So everybody stay safe out there, lpresearch.org, uh, operations at lpresearch.org for your questions, your comments, your suggestions. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council. 